Five years ago this month, journalist Colin Hansen released his first book, Young, Restless, Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinists. The book was published in March of 2008 by Crossway, and it was literally that, a travelogue of Colin's journey across the country documenting a new and surging movement called New Calvinism by some, and the Young, Restless, and Reform movement by others, or YRR for short, a phrase Colin himself coined in a cover story published in Christianity Today in 2006. It turns out Colin's hunches about this new movement was more than intuition. In 2009, Time Magazine listed New Calvinism as one of its 10 ideas changing the world right now. But it's been five years since the release of his book, and YRR has changed a lot in those few years. So where is the movement five years later? Where is YRR headed in the future? What have been some of the biggest changes and the biggest surprises, and what dangers lie ahead for the movement? We put Colin Hansen on the line to ask him. Colin lives in Birmingham and serves as the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. In the midst of preparing for the TGC National Conference in Orlando coming up later this month, he took time to talk with us, and I began by asking him for a brief history of his book. Yeah, well, Tony, the the book came out in 2008, but there was a cover story in Christianity Today by the same name of Young Restless Reform that came out two years earlier, actually the fall of 2006. So the origins had to do with a lot of things that were swirling in the air in the early to mid-2000s, which was a time that was shortly after I had graduated from college. So I was very much thinking about trends among younger believers, um, very much against my experience of going to a private non-Christian university uh, outside of Chicago. And what I was thinking was, you know, I keep hearing about all these books and all these conferences and all these speakers and this emergent phenomenon. Okay, so people were talking about the Brian McLarens, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, people like that. And this was part of what we were, you know, always talking about at Christianity Today. What does this mean that sort of re-envisioning Christian theology for a postmodern era and reaching young people who are just not persuaded by the old methods and the old theories and the old way of doing church. So the, the problem for me, though, Tony, is when I kept hearing about all these trends in the air, I just thought, this doesn't resonate with my experience as a young Christian. This doesn't resonate with the experience of my friends who are young Christians. These were people who were excited when CBD would put a big sale on John Calvin's, you know, entire commentaries, you know, the Bible, or uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermons, or they were looking forward to George Marsden publishing his biography of, of Jonathan Edwards, or they were listening to John Piper at Passion Conferences and, and listening and reading Desiring God and, and all of that. So it just didn't add up for me, so I thought, I need to go out and I need to try to figure this out. Is this just a projection of my experience that there are more and more young people taking an interest in Reformed theology, or is this actually a a legitimate phenomenon, maybe even a phenomenon worth paying attention to that's maybe a little bit counterintuitive, that instead of people wanting to reshape and re-envision and reimagine uh, Christian theology for postmodern era, that they would actually want to reinvigorate um, an evangelical belief on the authority of Scripture in continuity with the history of Christian thought from the Reformation, well, and before Reformation, on it didn't seem at the time like there were stats to back all of this up. It seemed to be a personal hunch at first. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, I was for a lot of journalists. You know, you're you're sitting there thinking. I mean, you 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 have your sources, okay, and the, probably the number one source that you have is just yourself. 
So, you know, what, what have you seen? What have you read? What have you experienced? Who are, who are the, what have the people near you experienced? And so you kind of just, you work outward from that. And I was fairly young at the time, so I didn't have a wealth of knowledge to be able to draw on, to be able to see this in, in uh, the bigger picture. But what was interesting, Tony, is that I actually think that my proximity to the story helped me in this case as a journalist because it was something that I was able to discern that I think a lot of older people weren't because, I mean, I remember talking with one actually very, very famous professor of uh, evangelical history, uh, teacher at an Ivy League college, and I mentioned going up to him, I took a class from him, and I asked him something about this Reformed theology saying, is there more interest in this these days? And he just laughed. Just laughed and said, no way. Nobody's believed in that stuff since the Second Great Awakening. I'm just entirely dismissive. And so this is somebody who's supposed to be among the very most learned professors of church history in America. And no clue, no, no recognition of this at all not seeing it as significant in any way, shape, or form. And that was just, his narrative of history had already been written. It didn't allow for ongoing changes. Colin, was there a point then before or after the book was released when you realized that YRR was not just a hunch from your personal experience, but it was a, a legitimate, stable movement? Yeah, I'm trying to remember, Tony. I think there was one point, I remember, I don't remember if it was after the article or after the book, but I remember walking out to my car, I was living out, again, the Chicago suburbs, I was walking out to my car with my wife, and I looked at her, and I basically just said, like, am I making it all up? I mean, I, I just, I still wondered, am I just, am I making this up? Because, I mean, I had talked with president of, of a very famous Christian college, and, and he sat me down, and he said, you know, you're, you are making this up. You're, you're projecting this. This is not happening. What was so funny, though, is that it was happening under his nose. It was happening in his own church, and he didn't have a clue because it was happening among younger people. It was happening in a college ministry, but he just couldn't see it. So I think that was one of the moments, Tony, when, when I saw when I'd been really publicly rebuked by this college president for my writing when I looked at his own church, looked into his college ministry, and found out they were reading the article, they were reading the book, they were like the perfect embodiment. In fact, that college pastor came to me later and said, why didn't you interview us? Like, why didn't you profile us? You, we would have been a perfect model for your book. So that was, that was one moment that really helped to, me to understand that there, there is something happening, even if some other people, at the time at least, didn't really know it. Then there was a point when New Calvinism began catching the attention of popular media. Yeah, that's right. We had, uh, I mean, uh, probably Time Magazine making it one of their kind of big ideas, changing the world right now. That was, I think, in 2009. Um, that, was, uh, that was a case, uh, the, the writer of that piece, David Van Bema, at the time a religion reporter for Time, uh, was somebody who did a very smart thing. I wish more religion reporters would do it. He would read Christianity Today to find out what's happening among evangelicals, and he saw that, saw that cover story, and he thought, huh, this is pretty interesting. And he'd piece together different 
different trends from from here and there from people like Mark Driscoll and John Piper and the Jonathan Edwards resurgence and you know so getting that on the cover of Time magazine uh was a was a pretty big step of other people noticing as well. Yeah, it sure was. Um if somebody came to you and said Colin, I don't know if I'm in this YRR group or not. What objective criteria would you put forward theologically that would indicate that someone is in or out of the movement? Yeah, that is a great question, Tony. And what's interesting is that I'm describing things from a from a journalistic perspective, a phenomenological perspective. And so what we're looking at is more of a movement which has certain definitions, but they're fuzzier. You know, we're not talking about a a, conf- a, a confessional organization. Um, even like the one that I'm working for now is the Gospel Coalition. If you said, are you in or are you out of the Gospel Coalition, I could point to our confession, and I could point to our theological vision for ministry, and I could say, do you agree? And if you agree, yes, you're a part of it. If you disagree, then no, you're not a part of it. Or, you know, are you on the council or are you not? Things like that. I could point to that. But, but the YRR phenomenon is a, is a bigger phenomenon, and it's, and again, it, I think some of the criteria that I looked at in the book um, I looked more, less at objective theological criteria. I certainly, though, there would be a primacy on certain certain doctrines. Um, the inerrancy of Scripture would be a leading one. Uh, the, the the providence of God in all things. He's working all things together for His glory and our good. Um, the substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death. His substitutionary death for sinners. Obviously, the the resurrection. The justification. Jesus Christ. I mean, these are, of course, all of these doctrines. Uh, the resurrection will be a little bit different, but these doctrines have been very much challenged within evangelicalism. So, New Calvinism, insofar as it takes on those uh, beliefs about atonement and justification and inerrancy and the providence of God, they're very just. New Calvinism is basically evangelical. You know, it's it's, it's not necessarily distinctively. Calvinistic in that sense. Now, of course, New Calvinism would go beyond beyond that, but one thing that's, I think, important that a lot of people misunderstand, Tony, about New Calvinism is that they think it's all about the Calvinism, and that's the main concern, that we just want to make everybody else a Calvinist. Well, I think we would gladly love for that to happen, but the forefront, uh, kind of the cutting edge, have been doctrines that historically have been shared by far more than Calvinists, where you, there's a lot of cause that can be made uh, among, uh, among Calvinists of a Baptist variety, or Anglican, or even Lutherans, or, um, uh, or much, more, much more broadly. And so, so when I talk about New Calvinism, what distinguishes it? Certainly in the book I talk about TULIP and, and things like that, the five points of Calvinism. But it's really a, a core concern for these doctrines that these new Calvinists would see as guarding and advancing the gospel. When I think of people who influenced YRR, I think of Louis Giglio. I don't know if he's a Calvinist or not, but he holds to such a high view of God, and he understands the bigness of God. And that, that seems to be at the heart of, of new Calvinism. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And one of the things that's interesting when you're looking at the historical development of this movement is that you look at somebody like, like uh, Louis, and like you said, he does not, does not want to be described as a part of this. And yet I can, fi- and I can think of, and I don't know actually, I don't know actually what he believes about the five points of Calvinism. In fact, 
I've talked with other people who are very close to him, and they don't know what he believes about the five points. And so it might be a little bit odd that I would have talked so much in the book about passion. I wrote an, another cover story for CT just about uh, the passion movement and, and conferences, which were even were smaller back then, only like 20,000 people or 25 as opposed to 60,000 this last year. But there have been few people who have actually done more to whether wittingly or not, advance new capitalism than Louis Giglio. And you think about it because he set up this conference, he organized it around this worship of a big God and invited a preacher who was not that well-known at the time, back in the mid-1990s, to be able to come and to present a passionate vision of that big God. Of course, that preacher was John Piper. And so how many people, I mean, you may have seen this recently, Tony, and maybe some of the listeners did as well, um, where, where uh, there was a circulating around Twitter or comments about how many people had been influenced by passion. And a lot of people, especially in their 30s um, right now, really first came to know about Calvinism and, and uh, John Piper through passion. A lot of people who are professors at seminaries now are or pastors of young and growing churches. So, so again, that's why it's hard to describe. Like, is Louis in or out? I don't know. All I can say is that looking at the phenomenon, whether he's been trying to or not, he has aided the advance of the movement through, through, through passion. He sure has. And looking at your book and reading through your book again this past week, Louis is one of the consistencies that we see from 2008 until now. Pastor John, I think, is another one of those consistencies, too. But there are so many changes with so many of the people that you talk to throughout the book. As you look back on the last five years since you published the book, what has surprised you most about the course of the YRR movement, and what types of things would you add if you wrote an ex extended version of your book today? I'd have to add a lot of different things. I mean, probably the first thing to add, I talked about hip-hop um, in the book. Um, I, I talked with a Curtis Allen and a guy who I had never heard of at the time, and Really, not many other people knew who Shylin was either at the time, but I just happened to have met him at a conference. Uh, Kurt, Curtis Allen introduced us, um, and he just kind of, you know, sat in on the meeting. And and uh, I mean, it didn't take me long to realize that God had had brought this meeting together, and I was just fascinated. I mean, I'll never forget Shylin talking about going to 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia and how his vocal cords were strained because he'd never sung like this before. And now just to see how in a, in a language that is, that is more uh, natural, you know, that more fitting of Shai's interests, hip-hop, how that has just swept across the broader evangelical landscape. And not even that, but what God is doing, incredible work, just calling people to himself through that hip-hop movement. And again, it's, Calvinism is not the leading edge. Again, it, it's the bigness of the God, uh, bigness of God, and it's the glory of the gospel that's the leading edge of it. And I think that's what makes it so appealing, whether it's Lecrae or Shylin or Tripoli or any of these other guys. So I would definitely have to start with, with hip hop as, uh, or I'd have to make that a much bigger part of it. Um, I mean, there's any number of other things. I would say that, you know, worship music was always a big deal with passion. Um, again, not knowing, not necessarily Calvinistic, but congregational songwriting has been a huge factor in this. One of the things that, that I've observed a number of times over the last few years is that the preaching in a church 
I mean, sometimes it's hard to, you know, to affect the doctrinal reformation in all these different pulpits, but with the way our media works today, you could actually, um, you, you can actually get songs into churches a lot easier than you can get good preaching. So if we, good Calvinistic songwriters can either reappropriate and retune old hymns, or they can just write modern hymns like the Gettys and Stuart Townend and people like that, and they can get, I mean, how many churches today are singing in Christ alone? You know, not necessarily a Calvinistic song, but certainly one that Calvinists would offer a hearty amen to. So, so that's another phenomenon, but there's a couple of other things. The Internet was a big deal when I wrote the book, but, I mean, it was one of the things, the Internet was kind of a refuge for people who were in churches not supportive of Calvinism. It's grown just, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, even just Desiring God's ministry, how it's continued to grow. Um, where I work, the Gospel Coalition, I didn't start working there until 2010. And so we've seen just some very encouraging growth during that time. So there's been some of that consolidation. Um, I think maybe the most interesting change, Tony, is that um, there, was a, there was one person who, uh, he was not, he was becoming more well-known at the time, and, uh, but I, I tried many times to try to interview him, and he didn't really want to be part of the book. He didn't necessarily identify very closely with this movement. I talked with another prominent pastor, and, and I said, should I include this guy? And he's like, no. I mean, I, no, I don't think he um, really fits with this. Well, that pastor was Tim Keller. And that's incredible to think that I would not have mentioned Tim Keller in Young Restless Reformed. <laughs> Again, the changes have been how, um, as new Calvinism has, has grown and expanded and changed, there have been these kind of, sort of like leading edges that have broadened out far beyond New Calvinism and have sort of influenced the, the much bigger evangelical movement. And so those would be people like hip-hop, the websites. I mean, look at the list of kind of top blogs. It's dominated by Calvinists. And then people like Tim Keller. That's a great point. I think Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, was my introduction to him in 2008. It was a breakout book for him, I think. And many of us, even in YRR, really had never heard of Tim Keller up until that point. No, no, and, and I'll give you another, another quick anecdote about that. Uh, Don Carson, uh, president and co-founder with Tim Keller of the Gospel Coalition, uh, at the first ever meeting of TGC, I have this in the notes, Don Carson introduces Tim Keller as somebody who almost nobody in this room knows, but really ought to be more well-known by people. Again, that's, I don't remember what year that was, 2006? Matt Chandler and David Platt are two pastors and preachers who were also relatively unknown in 2008. What have they brought to YRR in the past five years? Well, that's interesting, Tony. You know, some people, especially critics, another thing that's changed with New Calvin is that it's become, you know, got a huge target. Got a huge target on a lot of people who hate New Calvinism. That's it was kind of, kind of a more of a kind of side phenomenon, or kind of people were unsure about it. Now they're pretty sure about it, and they're a lot of pretty sure they hate it. But one of the things that people have always said, the critics, is that this is just a John Piper thing. People just love John Piper. They worship even John Piper. And, you know, when he retires, when he dies, this thing will dissipate. Well, David Platt and Matt Chandler are a couple of examples of how that's hard to see. You know, if, whatever happens with John Piper, is that going to make David Platt and Matt Chandler 
I mean, these are young guys. We know Matt's cancer issues. I mean, we, any of us can go at any time. But, you know, are they going to suddenly change their beliefs? Are, are they dependent on John Piper? And obviously they've learned from John Piper. But, you know, I mean, it, it's not just kind of the well-known young, early, mid-30s pastors like those guys and Kevin DeYoung and, and many others, but it's also just the, the, the young, ordinary pastors, the church planters, the, the people going to seminary right now, just graduating, just getting into ministry, just moving from kind of youth ministry into solo or senior pastor. It's like those guys have brought just sort of a, another, like just new voices who again appeal very broadly. I mean, if you look at just the whole list of, let's take John Piper, let's go John Piper to David Platt. Okay, so John Piper, very influential among Southern Baptist pastors, even though he himself is not Southern Baptist. Okay, but David Platt is, I think, probably even more influential among Southern Baptist pastors, been invited to speak in gatherings where maybe John Piper hasn't spoken before. So when a lot of people look at the future of the SBC, they wouldn't have seen John Piper as that, but they could plausibly see David Platt as the future of the SBC. Again, not because of Calvinism, but because this is a man who loves God. And he loves his word, and he loves to preach the word, and he loves to preach the gospel, and he wants to get it to go out to the nations. And that's, what, and that's, a, that's a compelling vision in an SBC that needs young preachers, needs the gospel to be proclaimed, because you know, any number of our churches, any of our churches, only one generation away from losing the gospel and ultimately spiritual extinction. You're a perceptive student of movements like this, and and as you forecast the future, what are some of the things that you have an eye on? What are some of the biggest challenges ahead for YRR? What are some of the of your thoughts about the movement going forward? Yeah, well, there's always a challenge for a movement. It's very easy to organize a movement when you're against something. Um, so if you're the kind of Calvinistic underdog against the semi-Pelagian menace of evangelicalism, you know, it's easy to kind of overlook your differences. It's easy to say, well, you, you have this particular view on ecclesiology or on, or on the kingdom or on baptism or something like that, and I have my view, but at least we can all agree that Joel Osteen needs to be stopped. You know, it's, it's fairly easy for movements to rally around, as a minority, rally against something else. Well, as New Calvinism continues to grow, it's still a minority movement in evangelicalism. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But as it's grown, there are now some of those differences rise to the surface. There are a number of critics, not just from the, from the Arminian side of things or beyond that, the semi-Pelagian side of things, but very, very, very strong and strident and often angry critics from the Reformed side of things, saying this is... This is not my Reformed theology. Not, not to mention there's just always going to be, you know, there's, there's sin. There's relational strife. There is any number of things that just happen. All of us know that from our own relationships, whether it's a family or a church or whatever. So this movement is not exempt from those problems. So I think, you know, it's, it's a constant challenge to say if we truly believe that God is sovereign that the gospel is good and that the gospel is for all of life, are we going to actually believe it? In our, are we going to actually demonstrate that we believe it in our actions toward one another 
when we're tempted to act differently. So that's a, those, are, those are big challenges, whether it's a movement or a church or a family that's growing. And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how things are going to shake out. Colin, in your mind, what role are conferences going to play in the future of this movement? I'm thinking specifically of Together for the Gospel and, and TGC conferences specifically. What type of role would those have in the movement going forward? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing that we've seen, Tony, at the Gospel Coalition is that just two years ago, if people would have thought, who is the Gospel Coalition, they would have thought of a conference. And when you think of the Gospel Coalition, you can think of a lot of things. You could think of a conference. You could think of our 50-odd council members, or you could think of, say, our website. Well, you know, two years ago, in 2011, our website was kind of in the early stages of, of growth. And so, I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people now would probably think of us first as a website before they would think of us as a conference. So the conference is still absolutely vital. We're thrilled about, about our conference, and, and it has a vital role of bringing people together. But it's interesting how the website has kind of taken that conference, you know, those resources and that sort of coalescing and that kind of like a, it's created a virtual meeting space every single day for people. So, so I definitely see an ongoing role for conferences, for the, for the DG conferences and for the T4Gs and, you know, T4Gs now doing a, you know, a student ministry conference. And so what I see though is that, um, and this is something we're trying to do at the Gospel Coalition. I know DG has done, and many others. Like we're looking to, we're looking to regionalize things. So, say for example, it's you know getting a bunch of people from your church to travel across the country to Orlando to attend a Gospel Coalition conference. It's probably not going to happen. So we'll get church leaders leaders from around the world, but but we want to continue to see that vision seep down into the churches, and that's a lot easier when it's drive two hours or drive 10 minutes. Um, so it's sort of like now we're, we're looking at ways, and it's not just us, it's all sorts of people, which is, I think, a very encouraging movement, taking the conference to the people instead of the people to the conferences. TGC is really helping to make possible these regional associations. How many official TGC regions are there currently in the United States? Oh, that's a great question. You know, some of them we, we have better tabs on, some of them we, we don't. I mean, off the top of my head, I know we have, you know, we have Los Angeles and Orange County and Hawaii and Albuquerque and Phoenix and Oklahoma, and, I mean, we've, we've got a number of them. Uh, Boston is one of our strongest. Boston, New England is one of our strongest ones. So, I mean, we're, it's still, you know, it's very different. We're, we're a very small organization, and so we depend very much on local partners to do that, and so we sort of wait for a strong local partner to emerge and, and try to support them as we can. So, so, again, we're looking to do that, but, I mean, just there was a recent conference in Albuquerque sold out with 700 people, Paul Tripp, Timothy Lane, speaking there. I'm sure a lot of those people, they're not church leaders. You know, they're not, they're not going to come ever to a Gospel Coalition or T4G conference, but we're getting that. We're getting these, you know, gospel-centered messages to them where they are. I'm excited about that. Colin, thank you for your time. To conclude, here's one last question. Um, what, what continues to strike you about this young, restless, reformed movement? It's a fascinating thing to watch, and, and I'm thankful that, you know, when I... It's easy to get caught up in the drama. You know, if you're on the inside of things, it's easy to get caught up in the personalities and the, 
the books and even the money and things like that. You know, movements need institutions and institutions need money and, and money means fundraising and all that. So it's easy to get lost in that. But the but the beautiful simplicity of what God seems to be doing in our day from new Calvinism to, you know, what of gospel centered churches and theology or whatever is that he's building something up from the ground. You know, like this is this has been this is not something that's centrally orchestrated anywhere. There's no back room where all these decisions are are being made. I mean, these are these are people who are just getting ex- young people especially just tired of tired of their sin, tired of their churches that have just not they're not preaching the gospel, they're not standing for truth, they're not compassionately reaching out the way Jesus reached out. I mean, they're they're tired of that and they're looking for something something to really dig into that's going to help them to to grow spiritually and sustain themselves going forward. And so that's what it just excites me is that that movement continues. And I see that even in just my local church, spending time with a lot of folks who are, you know, in college, coming out of college, and that movement just keeps growing. I mean, I don't see that. I mean, I just I'm not in this as a fad. You know, like this is this is not this is not excite me because it's another the latest evangelical obsession with publishing fads and conference fads. Like this is real life. This is local church ministry, and that's what that's what excites me about the movement. And, and I'm thankful that at least so far, the hand of God's blessing continues to be on that. That was Colin Hansen on the line. He currently serves as the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. Colin is the author of the 2008 book, Young, Restless, Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinists, published by Crossway. He's also the author of the book, A God-Sized Vision, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir, a book he co-wrote with John Woodbridge in 2010. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.